text this morning, once again, is Ephesians 5. I assure you that one day we will leave Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Um, and I just want to just reiterate, I, I've heard through conversations um, with some of the, that some of you have had with my wife, for instance, that, um, that it might be a good idea to have a kind of a, a question and answer time to give you an opportunity in a group format to to ask questions for me to address. And so what I'd like, if you're interested, I'll just put this forth again and I'll put it forth one more time, then I'll let it lie. But if you'd be interested in having some kind of a gathering, say once a month, where we could try and deal with these questions and clarify anything that needs to be clarified, I'd, uh, I'd be happy to do that, but I don't wanna come up with another thing to stick on your calendar that I have to do that you're not gonna come to. So. If that makes sense, I'm, I'm happy to serve you however you need to be served, but I, I don't want to do anything that's not necessary. So if that's something that could be of value to you, why don't you just let me know? Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself and your word. And then you would turn the mirror around and show us ourselves in your word and that we would see where we need improvement. By your Holy Spirit, through his grace working within us to continue regenerating and sanctifying us. Give us the ability to act on what we see in a constructive way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just want to remind you once again that once I take off the bifocals and put on the reading glasses, I can't see more than about three feet in front of me. So if I appear to be singling some of you out, please know that I am not. I'm just looking off into outer space. So I'm not looking at any one of you when I'm talking about these things. I don't want you to become paranoid. Um, but uh, I, I wanna share this morning with you uh, an embarrassing secret. I like classical music. I'm... Oh, okay, there's one. All right, I am a hillbilly and the grandchild of hillbillies, uh, my, my father, uh, well, my uncle was once asked what kind of family he came from, and he said, well, we're upper middle class white trash. 
and uh, that's true. But I like classical music. I started liking it in college, and I especially like it live. And so I like to go to the symphony. Uh, I'm not very musically educated. I don't understand a lot of what's going on, but I like the music. And uh, when my wife and I, for instance, lived in Cincinnati, uh, we would go to the, uh, to the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, which is quite a good orchestra because there's a conservatory there that's about the third best one in the whole country. And uh, we even went to some operas because we had a friend of a friend who worked for the opera and we could get in and, and uh, get free tickets. And so we did things like that. Uh, then we moved to Rapid City, South Dakota, and there was a little bit of a drought for about 14 years. There was a symphony orchestra there. It was awful. And I think I went once and uh, didn't enjoy it, so we never went back again. Uh, then we moved to Omaha, and one of the things my wife got me for my birthday, or was it Christmas, I can't remember, was uh, a, a, basically a, a, a season pass to a certain number of concerts at the Omaha Symphony Orchestra. And one of the things that excited me about moving to Youngstown is that there is not one, but two world-class symphony orchestras within an hour of here. And, uh, and I was just, after I started thinking about this, I realized, hey, COVID's over, and uh, I bet the symphony is fired up again. And I looked at both Cleveland and Pittsburgh and got very excited and, and booked a date night with my wife. And uh, we're gonna go, uh, Pittsburgh looks amazing. They must have a ton of money in the bank because they're doing really neat things with it. But um, I haven't gotten around to fixing the dent that COVID put in my symphony going. Now, if you've ever been to a symphony or if you ever decide to go to one, um, when you get there, you will sit down and there will be a time at first when the stage is empty and then the musicians will come in and they will sit down and then there's this horrid bunch of noise that happens and that's not the symphony. That's the musicians doing what they need to do to tune their instruments and everybody's doing their own thing, and it sounds awful. Now, it is a necessary step, it's an important step, but from the, the perspective of the person sitting in the audience, it is really, really unattractive. It is just ugly chaos. And then, after all that noise for a little while, the orchestra will fall silent, and then someone will enter the auditorium and will take his, usually his, place at a podium in front of the orchestra as they are in a semicircle around him. And this person is the conductor. And the conductor's job is to bring all of the different sections of instruments into a beautiful, harmonious order so that the musical vision of the composer can be brought to the audience in a fresh and an immediate way. Now, the conductor is a vital piece of the performance. He uses his hands, often he uses a baton, to communicate with the musicians in a complex, nuanced, detailed kind of sign language. And the reason that the conductor is so necessary for the performance is that the conductor is the only one who can hear everything and make adjustments. When a violinist is playing, he or she cannot hear the other members of the orchestra very well. Even though the violinist knows what to play, he or she won't know when to play it, 
And so they have to look to the conductor for that. And so if you're a violinist, for instance, uh, there are two main tasks that you have. Each musician has to master their part, the music that's given to them, and then the musician must skillfully play that part exactly when and exactly how the conductor directs them to play it. And it's the conductor who sets the timing. It's the conductor who sets the tempo. It's the conductor who sets the volume. Very often you'll see him up there waving and then he'll look at one section and go like this and it's like, play louder, because he, he sets the volume. And, and the conductor knows what needs to be played. And, and, and so he's the, the director of the music. And if he didn't do his job, the symphony would be ruined. It would be uh, impossible to have it. It would just be uh, more noise, like the instrument tuning. In this situation, the conductor has a certain authority just by virtue of his position. And when I say position, I mean literally in that sense, that he's in a position, he's in the front of the orchestra, and he alone can hear everyone in their fullness. And so that gives him an authority to direct what's going on. This doesn't make him a better human being. It just makes him different. He has a, a different job. He has different responsibilities. And that's a good thing because the symphony wouldn't function unless everyone played their role. Now, here's an interesting thing. Once again, I'm not musically educated, but in my understanding, and I've, I've even talked a couple of times with, with guest conductors at certain symphonies, um, that rarely are conductors accomplished instrumentalists themselves. Uh, and they certainly aren't experts in every instrument in the orchestra. And, and so, for instance, it's up to the drum player to know how tight to stretch the skin on the kettle drum. And it's up to the trumpeter to know how best to use his mute to uh, achieve the right tone and the right volume. And so the, the conductor's job is not to micromanage the musicians. The conductor simply asks the musician for a certain result, and the musician has a great deal of creative control over how to achieve that result. Uh, it was interesting, there, there was, I don't know how many of you know or remember the name Bobby McFerrin. Uh, he was the, in that song in the late 80s, Don't Worry, Be Happy. He was the one who composed that and did all the arrangements, and he uses his body as an instrument and his voice, and he is a genius. I mean, he is just a genius. And he actually conducted the uh, St. Paul Symphony Orchestra. And the year that we moved to St. Paul, he left, which I was very disappointed because I wanted to see him in action. I've seen him on videos and things like that. If you ever want to have some fun for about five minutes, just go look for Bobby McFerrin conducting one thing or another on YouTube and you will be entertained because he is just a genius, just amazing. But I happen to know for a fact that the only instruments that he plays is a little bit of piano and then percussion, and that's it. And yet he was a, a conductor and has been a guest conductor all over the world for all these symphony orchestras. So a properly run orchestra then isn't a dictatorship. It's a partnership. And when you have a star instrumentalist as a guest, for instance, a violinist with her Stradivarius or a concert pianist who comes from Europe to give a special concert, then that person has enormous creative control over how they give the conductor what he's asking for. And that's their special talent. 
It, their special talent is to play the music, say Mozart or, or Brahms, in their own special way, in their own interpretation, is how they talk about it, and that gives it added meaning and added beauty. And you will often pay extra to hear these guest stars. That is, I think, an ideal way to think about the Christian family. Every organization, if it's going to function properly, requires a conductor and it requires instrumentalists. And a Christian family is no different. The beauty of its performance is a result of creative collaboration between people who have different roles, different jobs. And of course, the most central two people in this lifelong collaboration are the husband and the wife. You see, the family, and particularly the married couple, are the foundation of all society. They were the foundation of creation, as far as human beings were concerned. God didn't create a city. He didn't create a bunch of, he didn't create a military unit with ranks. He created male and female. He created a husband and a wife. And he said, this is my basic unit for all of human society. Now, I've gone to great pains to try and make it clear from Scripture that the differences in the roles of husband and wife, as they are described in the Scriptures, are not arbitrary. They're not unjust. These roles are, are not interchangeable at all. They are, in fact, woven into the creative purposes of God, and they were there even before the fall. They are reflections of the relationships between the members of the Holy Trinity, and they are both more difficult and more important after the fall. And then we saw last week that they also tell the world about how Christ relates to his church and how the church relates to Christ. And so when a husband relates correctly to his wife, he shows the watching world a visible parable of how Christ cares for his people with exquisite and tender love. And when a wife relates appropriately to her husband, she shows the watching world a visual parable of how the church relates to her Lord. Now, last week, I also took great pains, to, great pains rather, to explain that each role is, in its own unique way, a servant role. It's a servant role. Once again, roles are different, but the husband serves his wife. And the husband serves his wife differently than the wife serves her husband. So it's not all one way. The husband is the head of his wife, and the wife respecting her husband doesn't mean the wife serves the husband while he sits back in the chair and says, bring me a turkey pot pie and another beer, please. Or even leaves off the please, right? That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not how marriage is designed to work in, among God's people. In the wisdom of God, whether we realize it or not, each one serves the other in exactly the way that the other needs. Now, you remember when God made Adam and Eve, he made them for each other as a complement to each other, and he made Eve for Adam to fill up the places where he was empty and to be strong in the places where he was weak and to be weak in the places where he was strong. That was Eve. And so he's, he's done these, these, this wonderful thing of putting two different people together in such a way that they mesh 
in a beautiful way. That's his job. That's his goal. And once again, we find that modern psychological research has discovered, lo and behold, that men and women have different needs within a marriage relationship. And we also find that when we break down all the research, that the Bible accurately described those needs 2,000 years ago, right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Now, for the last 50 years or so, our culture has pursued a wrong understanding of men and women, and therefore, based on this erroneous understanding, has uh, sought to grind marriages to fit into that wrong understanding, and it's been enormously destructive to everybody involved. It's been destructive to men, it's been destructive to women, it's been destructive to marriages, it's been destructive to children. And a great deal of the reason why we are in the mess we are sociologically today in America is because for the last 50 years, we've been trying to turn a lie into the truth and then craft our marriages around the lie. And not just our marriages, our whole view of male and female, men and women. Well, we have different needs. And, and uh, one, one thing that's happened, and it, this gets some talk these days, but not much, uh, men and boys in particular, young men and boys in particular, are teetering on the edge of a crisis that has never really been seen before in human history. And it's precisely because of this lie. Well, so what are these different needs? Well, the woman's primary need is to receive love from her husband. And the man's primary need is to receive respect from his wife. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that the woman doesn't need to feel respected. I'm not saying that the man doesn't need to feel loved. We all need both. But it's a question of emphasis. But that emphasis is incredibly important. For instance, surveys show that if men were asked whether they would prefer to be loved but not respected in a professional environment, they said, no, I would prefer to be respected and unloved. The interesting thing is women asked the same question, overwhelmingly chose to be loved over being respected if they had to choose. They're just the opposite. It's almost like God made us different to complement each other on purpose. I don't know, it could be. There was one survey of 7,000 couples. When you start surveying 7,000 couples, you're, you've got a pretty statistically significant survey. And these 7,000 couples were asked, when you are engaged in a conflict with your spouse and things are not going well, do you feel like the other person is treating you with a lack of love or with a lack of respect? 83% of the men who responded said, I feel like she's treating me with a lack of respect. 72% of the women who responded said they felt like they were not being loved. The University of Washington did a 20-year-long survey of 2,000 couples, and they, they carried this experiment out with the same couples over 20 years. And, and the leader of that study is a man named Dr. John Gottman, and he published the results of that in a book that's not a Christian book, but it is a good book nonetheless, and it's called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, Dr. John Gottman. I'll try and put that up on Facebook. 
um, after the, the service. I'll try and put it up this afternoon. And what he and his team discovered is that love and respect are the two keys to a lasting marriage. That you, if you have a fundamental love and respect, you can fruitfully discuss all of the things that we think will tear a marriage apart. You can fruitfully discuss money issues, division of labor, sexual issues, issues around child rearing, differences in preference, differences in expectation of the other person. You can discuss almost anything as long as it is done within a context of love and respect. But the interesting thing is, according to the research, men exhibited a strong preference towards being respected and feeling respected, and women exhibited a strong preference towards being loved and feeling loved in those interactions. Now, think back with me once again to the beginning. Think back to Eden right before the, the fall. How did Eve mess up? Well, she began by failing to listen to the command of God that was conveyed to her through her husband. God never directly addressed her and told her not to eat. He told the man before she was even created. And the man told her. And so she, she just said, no, I'm not going to do that. She, she did what she wanted to do. She failed to respect him. And she failed to respect his God-given office. Now, when someone that you're an authority over hears and understands what you've told them to do and does another thing because they think that you are untrustworthy or they think that you are stupid uh, and that you don't know what you're talking about and that they know better, how does that make you feel? Massively disrespected. And that's what Eve did to Adam, right out of the gate. Adam stood there the whole time, didn't intervene, didn't correct the, 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 the misunderstanding, didn't protect her. And think about how you feel when someone stands by and watches you while you screw up and make a wreck of something, not because they've told you 15 times how to do it right and you've ignored them, so they're like, all right, go ahead and you do it your way and see what happens. No, if they, if they know that you would listen to them and they know you're about to make a mistake and they just sit there and watch you and then they think maybe it's funny after the train wreck happens. They just let it happen. They watch you crash and burn for no good reason. How does that make you feel? Massively unloved. And Adam did that to Eve. And then when we get to the curse that God pronounces in Genesis 3, we find that Adam's job is still his job, only now it's much harder. Because his helpmeet has become much less helpful because she's got her own projects going on, and they're mostly about her trying to soothe the sense of anxiety that's gripped her because of the fall. And she wants him to help her, and she's busy in that regard, and is not really thinking about how she's supposed to help him, and, 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 and yet his job has gotten exponentially harder because of the fall. Now it's thorns and thistles instead of just picking a few apples off the tree. And, and he's somehow supposed to still be the conductor. Uh, it's, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that um, we talked about trait neuroticism and, and the big five uh, personality dimensions and, and how women score higher and that leads to women overwhelmingly being represented 
uh, in the groups that, that suffer from anxiety and depression. Men go a different direction when they're messed up. And, and men tend to go towards aggression. Men are wildly overrepresented in the populations that have antisocial personality disorder, for instance, and also alcoholism and addiction and drug abuse. They are massively overrepresented in ADD and ADHD. In other words, their brains changed too to respond to the environment that God put, has now put them in because of the curse and the fall, and it ain't good. Just like Eve is always feeling a need to be safe, Adam's always feeling a need to exert aggression because there are bad people out there and bad animals out there now. And so, and he's got to supposedly protect everybody. And so he's got a, a hair trigger. I, I know sometimes my girls think I'm absolutely bananas because I'm like a fanatic about home security. And, and I, you know, I live in a nice neighborhood, but it's not very far from another, a not nice neighborhood. And when I pull up the map of the things that happened the night before or the weekend before, and there's all the shootings, they're all about a mile from my house. And so I think about those things pretty carefully. And then I find out that we've got a sex offender that's moved in a couple of doors down who kidnapped a 12-year-old or 14-year-old girl and, and raped her. And, uh, and now they're letting him live in my neighborhood. So now I'm even more paranoid, right? There was one time where I was trying to explain, we, you know, we don't have deadbolts. We've got keys for both sides of the door, the inside and the outside. So if you're inside, you have to lock it with a key. And my daughter has a, a door in her room. And it's got a deadbolt with a key. And I said, don't leave the key in the door. And she left the key in the door. And I kind of went bonkers. And I was trying to explain why we don't leave the keys in the door. I said, we've got these little single pane doors with these little windows right here. And anybody that wants to could just go boom and punch it in. And, I, and it's, in doing that, I actually punched out the glass. And my hand's bleeding. And I'm like, see, see what could happen? And they're like looking at me like, dad, you're nuts. I'm like, yes, I'm nuts. Pay attention to me, right? Because that's how God wired me. Is it too much? I don't know. Maybe. But that's how God wired the man to cope with this new fallen environment. Eve's job in childbearing has become much more difficult and painful and dangerous as well. And she is vulnerable to sexual predators and to people who want to use her in all manner of ways. And so God adapted her nervous system to this new environment of death and danger. And so she's always on alert. And she always feels a need to control things. She always feels a need to manage the people around her in her life to suit her. And that's true whether she's doing it rightly or wrongly. Your desire will be for him, says God in Genesis 3.16. And that doesn't mean sexual desire. It's the same word that's used 24 verses later when Cain is about to kill Abel and God says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, she wants to dominate him and usurp his role in the exact same way that sin wanted to dominate Cain. Because she wants to feel protected and safe. And she looks to him to make her feel protected and safe, and he doesn't make her feel protected and safe, and she's mad at him about how she feels, and often not without some real justification. And so his great temptations in, in this situation are aggression and anger towards her, 
or else withdrawal. Cowardice, laziness, abdication, or some weird combination of both. Her great temptations are inappropriate attempts to control, contempt for him, and a kind of relentless dissatisfaction that really can't be solved apart from absolute confidence in God. And it's interesting, once again, uh, psychological research has shed some light on these things. It's identified uh, this trait in, in women and labeled it the insatiability of the female. In other words, women are overwhelmingly prone to dissatisfaction with the status quo in a relationship. They're never content for long. And God comes along, and through the pen of the apostle, Paul gives specific instruction to the man and different specific instruction to the woman so that this situation can be constructively set right with the help of the Spirit of God. And he says, husbands love. Husbands love. Now, there is a whole bunch of freight behind that word love. It's the, the word, he's, he's not commanding eros, love. He's commanding agape, love. The love of 1 Corinthians 13. Love, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. It's not jealous. It doesn't seek its own way. It doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never fails. And he says, husbands, love your wives. You, know what's, you want to know something interesting? Nowhere in Scripture does it tell wives to love their husbands. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because, in general, the woman is more naturally loving. And so her great temptation lies in another direction. And God's like, I'm not going to tell her to do what I, I built her to do. And so, because uh, I'm not into redundancy. So he looks at the husband and says, your fundamental failure in Eden was a lack of love. And the curse made loving her harder. Now, you're full of the Spirit of God. You've got new possibilities for being because you're walking in the kingdom of God with Jesus. And this is what God commands you to do. Love your wives. Love your wives. And he says to the wives... Respect your husband. In other words, do exactly what your first father and mother did for each other before the fall and do exactly for each other what they failed to do in the fall because the curse is now broken in Jesus. So do for each other exactly what the curse made you not want to do. Show that the curse is reversed because you are in Jesus. Because the kingdom of God, with all of its power, dwells within you, according to Jesus. Now, we're going to unfold these things more next week, but I want to start with a critical distinction. When the Bible says, husbands, love your wives, it doesn't mean love everything she does and says, right? not talking about a blank check for her actions and attitudes and words. It's talking about love for her person, care for her person. And the exact same distinction comes with the command for the wife to respect her husband. 
There are a lot of women right now who do not respect their husbands because they say, he hasn't earned my respect because of his actions. And his actions might have been bad. They might have been terrible. I wouldn't defend them. But the Bible doesn't say, respect your man unless you don't think he's respectable and then do whatever you want. So what are we called to, what, are, what is God calling you to do? Calling you to respect his person, his spirit, who he is. Now this is a, a critical distinction. We're, we're to, in other words, if you say, I'm not going to respect him until he deserves it and he's earned it, are you willing to have him say, I'm not going to love her until she's earned it and deserved it. I'll love her when she's lovable. She says, I'll respect him when he's respectable. Um, I, I can probably give you the, the number of some good attorneys to handle your divorce, because that's where you're going if you persist in that way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. You, you, and, and here's what makes it all the more difficult. You remember I told you that women came up with a, got together and came up with a, a system to fix the problem that they thought was uh, because of the failure of men. And, and one of the ways that that's sort of been filtered down to us is, um, is the feminist heresy, which says the husband has to love the wife, but the wife doesn't have to respect the husband. I, you have to love me, but I don't, have to re- I don't have to respect you. I can love you and not respect you. But you say, well, you know, you're being a little harsh, Brian. Maybe prove your case. Okay, well, one of the places that I always go when I say, okay, what's the, what's the current popular mindset? Because all of these things that are fed to us in the movies and in music and, and everything else, all of these things are vehicles for ideas. That's why it's really important to be careful about what you put in your mind, and that according to the scripture itself, right? So all of these, all of these popular things... Are, are vehicles, and, and one of my favorite sort of, if you really want to know what's going on in the lives of normal people, listen to country music. All right? I, I, I like good country music, just like I like classical music, and, uh, and just, to give you, just to give you a sample, okay? Um, a few years ago, there was a song by a woman named Shania Twain, Any Man of Mine. How many of you remember that song? Anybody? There's like three of you that do? Okay. Apparently, you are not that educated in the world of country music. Now, this was a number one song for many weeks on the country charts. Listen to the lyrics. This is what a woman wants, is how it starts. Any man of mine better be proud of me. Even when I'm ugly, he still better love me. All right. Guys go, I can be on board with that. Especially if you look like Shania Twain, because she was really good looking, right? I can be late for a date, that's fine, but he'd better be on time. Whoa. You have to love me. I don't have to respect you. Any man of mine will say it fits just right when last year's dress is just a little too tight. You betcha. I love you, honey. Anything I do or say, better be okay when I have a bad hair day. No. No. And if I change my mind a million times, I want to hear him say, yeah, I like it that way. No. 
One of the biggest fights I can still remember that I, that I ever had with a certain woman was when she wanted me to dig holes to plant a fence, and we dug three different holes and then decided not to plant a fence. And I went away just going, <laughs> you know. Any man of mine better walk the line, better show me a tease and squeeze and pleasing kind of time. I need a man who knows how the story goes. He's gotta be a heartbreaking, fine treating, breathtaking, earthquake and kind, any man of mine. Any man of mine better disagree when I say another woman's looking better than me. And when I cook him dinner and I burn it black, he better say, mmm, I like it like that. Okay, we'll give her that one, right? Now you say, well, that's just one song. No. That's the message that's been put out for the last 40 years in all the advertisements. You find me an advertisement, a commercial, where the husband is the smart one and the wife is the, is the sucker. You, you find me a movie where the husband is the smart one and the wife is the sucker. That's like trying to find a movie where a Christian isn't a, a secret axe murderer. They just they don't exist. You find me a song where these things are upheld. You, you, they, it, a book. Not, this is the universal message. I don't have to respect you, man, but you have to love me. And, it's, and, and if you demand respect, well, then we're just going to ridicule you and call you a person with a fragile ego and a narcissist and, and all that. And men, wives, ask your husband, he feels brave enough to be honest with you if this is right. Many men just feel crushed. They're not even sure why. They just feel crushed. And the minute that this sort of teaching is unfolded, there are a lot of guys that go, yeah, no, no, yeah, I, that's been what's, I haven't even had the words to think it or the concepts to think it, but yeah, that's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what I need. I just need to have my personhood respected. And, and men flourish in ways that women really like when they're respected. And men love women who respect them. They'll fall all over themselves to do what you need them to do if they feel respected. Instead, what we, what we have, and, it, and, and I'm told that this was done here a number of years ago, there's a, a great author named Emerson Egrich. He's a PhD in psychology, and, um, and he's got a, a book out called Love and Respect, and there's a, like a marriage conference that he does, and, and he talks about this, I think, very eloquently and very convincingly. And, uh, and instead, what we have is what he calls the crazy cycle, because we're talking past each other. And he says, when a woman feels unloved, she behaves with disrespect. And then a man feels disrespected, so he behaves in an unloving fashion. And so then the woman feels unloved, and she behaves with disrespect. And then the man feels disrespected, and he behaves in an unloving fashion. And we keep going round and round and round in the crazy cycle. It's all right here in the scripture. Husbands, love your wives. 
Wives, see to it that you respect your husband. Doesn't mean he thinks everything you do is lovable. Doesn't mean you think everything he does is respectable. But it's a basic commitment to care for each other's spirits in an appropriate way under the protection of Almighty God. Now, if the Lord spares us another week, we'll try and finish these things up and unpack a little bit uh, better the idea of what it means for a husband to actually love his wife in very concrete ways, to address those concerns that are driving her, and what it means for a woman to respect her husband in very concrete ways and address those concerns that are driving him so that you can be happy and at rest with each other and confident in each other and a living parable of Christ and his church. Father, we come before you this morning, and if there's anything that I've said that's unhelpful, untrue, please cause it to be forgotten. I I want there to be no opportunity for unjustified offense, and I want there to be great grace if there's justified offense. Great grace towards me. But if what I've said is true, if it's right, if it's accurate, if it's according to Holy Scripture, burn it on our hearts. In your name we pray.